Welcome to another Captain's Podcast. I'm Ilana Copley. Lucas Handley is the personification of Australia's magnificence, all six foot five of him with his dashing good looks. I was first intrigued about Lucas as a world-renowned freediver, yet through conversations I discovered he is a genuinely exceptional and thoroughly impressive man, wholeheartedly dedicated to the elevation of people and the environment. Lucas is a marine biologist, breath hold trainer, and environmental filmmaker whose film, Blue, has won an impressive array of international film awards, including for best cinematography. His freediving business, The Underwater Academy, in Byron Bay, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and Perth, encourages a greater understanding of our oceans. The experience of freediving on breath hold provides a freedom in combination with the satisfaction of achievement. The discipline that is required, and moreover the focus and mindset on achieving feats of endurance beyond expectation, are so strongly aligned with the leadership qualities businesses seek for their executive teams at an elite level. Beyond his clear intellect and humour, Lucas lives with a genuine focus on sustainability. The social enterprise he has established in the Philippines, scubaforchange.com, has been transformational for local communities. His adoration for the Solomon Islands and the communities with which he works there is truly spirit-lifting. Yet the most breathtakingly impressive aspects of Lucas are his vision for the future and how, by initiatives he has in the pipeline, not merely words, his legacy will live for future generations. Lucas Hanley is certainly one of Australia's favourite sons for the many reasons you will hear. While you're listening to this podcast, consider just one question. What will be your legacy? Lucas Handley, you're a world-renowned freediver, breath hold trainer, marine scientist, and multi-award winning environmental filmmaker. You've established a not-for-profit organisation that supports and serves community in the Solomon Islands and the Philippines through social enterprises. For listeners' reference, you're also six foot five. We'll cover each of those aspects of your work, but starting from the beginning, what is freediving and what drew you to it? Okay. Um... Well, thank you very much for the uh, the glowing introduction. Um, I'm looking forward to going over all of those. But uh, for freediving, so freediving is is kind of it's now as a, a fancy word for extreme snorkeling. So it's essentially um, there's a recreational side of things, which is holding your breath and then swimming down into the ocean uh, to explore you know, the world around you there. Um, but it's also a competitive thing where there's a, the actual sport of freediving is seeing how deep you can possibly go on one breath. And so how deep can you go and how long can you hold your breath? <laughs> okay, I'll always get this one. Um, we'll get it out of the way. So, <laughs> so um, my breath holds were when I was training uh, between six and seven minutes and when I was doing my depth, uh, I was sort of, going around between 50, 60 metres, and, and, um, but predominantly I was, I was doing that with a camera. I was really, my interest was never really about extreme competitive freediving. I really loved the, the challenge of going deep, but for me it was sort of more along the lines of where can I get to with the camera to bring back, you know, that, that sort of um, inspiration for people to The world beneath. Being, yeah. Yeah. And so how do you manage the pressure in your lungs when you go to that depth and imagine it's fairly extreme? Yeah, so that's actually interesting. So when most people first get into the water and they start to dive down a little bit deeper, 
um, they experience the pressure in their ears first. That's the big one. And everyone's like, oh, my ears, you know, how, I, I, how do you get past that feeling? Um, but eventually we do get to a pressure in our lungs. Um, so as you go deeper and deeper and deeper, eventually you get to a point where you have essentially a vacuum inside your chest. Right. You know, your, your rib cage is, can't fold in completely and uh, it's sort of holding your lungs outwards and, the, and, and it's creating like a negative pressure um, inside your chest. And, and we learn to deal with that in a particular way. It's a lot of stretching, um, but we have to do uh, things with the air uh, previous to that, that sort of vacuum happening. So it's sort of pumping that air out of your lungs and then storing it in your mouth um, so you can and equalize And so how later. do others do it compared to how you do it? Um. So everybody has uh, particular ways of, of equalizing. Something feels natural to somebody and something feels natural to somebody else. Um, we teach a couple of different ways which work really well for people. Uh, I have a very unique way of equalizing. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody else out there who does it, but um, so far I haven't met anyone. Um, I have trained the muscles inside of my nose to close, um, which most people use their hands to close off their nostrils when they equalize. I've, I've actually trained the muscles inside my nose to lock off by themselves. How, did, how long did it take you to do that? I don't think we should descend to detail. But. Um, that was a lot. That was years and years and years of-, of But of, that's the elite athleticism. I think that's just being a weird kid. <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, I mean, I wasn't necessarily guided in a particular way. I just, you know, I wanted to be able to do things with both hands underwater. And when you're underwater and you need to use both hands, you can't have one stuck on your face. So I kind of learned a different way of, of doing things. So I locked that off. To yeah, to be able adapt. to equalize my ears and push the air up there. So you, I closed my nostrils with my, with, the muscles inside my nose, and then I use my tongue to pump the air up into my ears um, to equalise that that pressure. That Biologically, that sounds incredible. It sounds like something you'd get teased for at school. I'd actually like to talk about mindset, given mm. what you do is such a feat of human endurance, and when you think of others who have undertaken those massive challenges like Sir Ranulph Fiennes and all of his mm. polar expeditions and mm. his transglobal, and then more recently with Louis Rudd going across Antarctica and then Louis Pugh swimming from Land's End down to Dover, 560 kilometres to mm. raise awareness about climate change and then to have swum for 12 minutes in a pair of Speedos through the Antarctic. What role does mindset play in freediving? Um, I think it, well, it's it's... Probably the single most important um, barrier to, to overcome, and and the people who who train their mind the way that they people train their muscles in a gym um, are the ones who really su succeed. You know, I think that uh, freediving as a sport or even as a recreation um, presents overwhelming mental challenges, and you can't just hope. To overcome them in the moment, you actually have to prepare for that in advance. Your mind um, usually it falls back on on habits that we've created, and 
when you put yourself in a, in a situation um, without being too dramatic, kind of almost a life and death situation, mm. um, you need to know that your mind will react in a way that keeps you alive. And if you haven't practiced or you haven't put in the positive um, reinforcements, you haven't trained your brain to react in a, in a particularly favorable way, then, you know, it's, it's sort of flying blind. And so given everything that people have been going through with COVID mm-hmm. and the challenges associated with it, with it and the apparent need for leadership amongst businesses, how do you see the skills required for free, dri- free diving translating to executives and leaders in businesses with that focus on mindset and as you're mm. saying that it needs to be a muscle almost that you train but it's, a, it's beyond instinct. It needs to be practised and... Yeah. So I see that there is... Obviously, there are people um, through their own experiences who have developed a particular mindset, which is very helpful for these situations. But I think um, we can always do better and learn to be better by focusing on a particular um, uh, set of skills with our mind. What I've found uh, with all the people who I've I've trained is there is an element to reinforcing positivity in our in our mind even in moments of incredible uh discomfort um which becomes pattern behavior right so when when we're presented with something that's uncomfortable or stressful or which is seemingly out of control our brain doesn't respond in a way that you'd anticipate it instead sees the positive of the challenge it accepts where you are because it's prepared for this particular moment. We say, you know, we've we've learned that discomfort is not something to uh, respond to um, in negative sense. It's more something that we um, motivate ourselves with. And when we can create positive rewards for reaching particular levels of of stress, our brain functions in a different way. It it, it becomes something that um, this able to uh, rise to the challenge rather than react to the the negative experience. So you've seen the impact of people's psychology and their attitude influence how they perform in free diving and with a- deep absolutely. breath. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I think I mean I spoke to somebody um, who who runs marathons a little while ago, and and they explained. A little bit what happens to them in their mind, and I and and what they said to me was, when it became unbearably uncomfortable, um, instead of thinking about how uncomfortable I was, I reminded myself that I was there to achieve something personally incredibly rewarding, and if you focus on that particular feeling instead of the discomfort, that was where he got his motivation, and that's kind of a little bit similar to what. We do. Um, we expose ourselves to discomfort continuously, um, and usually, uh, uh, when we're exposed to discomfort, stress, anxiety, um, something which is uncomfortable in in either in a real sense or a perceived sense, um, parts of our brain respond by sending out stress chemicals. Um, if we've learned uh, to activate a different part of our brain when we get those same sort of stress stimuluses and instead see that as a positive challenge, we don't necessarily lock down 
in the same way that you somebody would if they're responding negatively to that situation. Instead, um, we activate a part of our brain which sort of uh, slows down everything right? and is able to take in all the information around it and make positive choices uh, by seeing, the, 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 I guess, the challenge rather than the, the negative feelings. And so who are the types of people who come to you to undertake your training in breath hold and free diving? Are they executives? Are they people who want to experience underwater swimming with fish oh, or I've what's the... had everybody. I, I have... I've had people who um, want to overcome particular sort of anxieties or phobias around the water um, and we sort of take them through their anxiety and stress management and it's, a, it's an amazing challenge for them to be able to f- sort of fortify their mind um, when those sorts of things happen. I have people who have a fascination with the ocean and really want to see um, what it's like to immerse themselves in a totally alien world. Um, I have lots of uh, very... Uh, very busy corporates um, in our in our right. city centres. How do they respond to it? Because I'd imagine that if they are of a certain ilk and they're used to being treated a certain way and that they are suddenly put in a position where they have a loss of power and a loss of ego, because I imagine that you can't really rely on your ego to a degree, or maybe you do yeah. because you've got a self-awareness or a self-belief. Yeah, so it, it is I, – I, look, I – I don't think I could I could point to anyone who hasn't walked away and with it, absolutely loving it. And I and I I have a number of people, a part of my community, um, in in Sydney, um, which are very very much in the corporate sort of sector, and they love it. They come back like we train every Monday and Wednesday. I don't know if they've ever really taken this into the ocean. That's not that them for them. But what it is is it's an ability to switch off from their usual day. And really challenge their mind with something which is which is new and exciting, yeah. and they get to really sort of play with that um, that knife edge, I guess. Between- but it's also such an innate thing, like breathing. Most people just go, "Oh, breathing, it's an inherent thing." But to actually have to concentrate on it, but to be put in a circumstance mm-hmm. where they are being required to step up completely. Yeah, it, look, it challenges people. It definitely challenges people. People, you know, there's the, you don't know how you're going to respond unless you've prepared for it, mm. and if unless you put yourself in that situation, um, again, you can you can hope or imagine that you will do incredibly well. Um, this is one of the unique situations where the harder you try, generally the worse you perform. You have to be smart and you have to be humble with this. Um, the more active our mind becomes, the more we respond to stress, uh, the more we try and fight the feelings, the worse we perform. We actually need to find an inner peace. Um, We need to be able to change the way our mind processes um, negative or or stressful situations to be able to overcome things um, in 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 a new way. It's a unique way. You're no longer fighting to be the best. You are actually re- resisting those natural compulsions to re- to react to something, um, and being, I guess, being smarter about it in in a, in a way that's incredibly challenging. While underwater. While underwater, yeah. And so, do you have family combinations? I'd imagine that taking father, son, mother, daughter, father, daughter, mother, son. Mm-hmm. 
but those different dynamics between the families as well and then husband, wife or partners <laughs> and then you've got a competitiveness that goes with that. Oh, okay. So I I love getting couples when they come yeah. together. Um, it's fantastic and, and it goes one of two ways usually. One is they are incredibly supportive and they do, both do incredibly well and I have a, a – a couple who are now really good friends of mine who started doing my courses together and they've gone through, they did their sort of beginner sort of thing. Then they went into their sort of more immediate now and they they did their, their much deeper courses with me and they've always been so supportive with each other. And it's, and it's lovely. The other type that I get, and this is um, hilarious is we have um, somebody who's kind of into the sport or somebody who's kind of done a little bit and they think they're kind of, you know, that's kind of their thing a little bit. And they bring their partner along to sort of see how they, they go. And um, and it, I'm not saying it's a guy or a girl. It could be either way. And I certainly have had both ways. But let's, for the, yeah. the sake of um, uh, comedy and everyone's expectations, the guy <laughs> is bringing his partner along, yep. right? Yep, yep. And he expects to do quite well. Yes. And the very first time they hold their breath, you know, they, they take a big breath in and-, and um, and very shortly, as soon as he starts to feel a little bit uncomfortable, he looks over to check how she's doing. And she's doing fine. <laughs> and, and, and what that immediately does is like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's then the brain starts. Yeah, then the brain starts, obviously. And then, and, then, and then it's like, well, he looks around at everyone else. And he's like, okay, like, hey, look, you know, I don't have to be the best in the room. I just have to beat her. Yeah. Because I will not live this down if I don't. <laughs> That's right. And, 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 you, and as soon as that happens- the heart rate starts to increase just a little bit. Right, right? so self-sabotage yeah, comes the brain, in and It becomes a little bit more like that. And the more he becomes stressed about this particular, the feeling of not not succeeding, the less relaxed he becomes, right? So the faster he starts using oxygen, the faster it produces carbon dioxide, the discomfort builds and builds. And then she's fine because she doesn't care at all. She's just like, I hope he's happy, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> yeah. and, and that kind of um, uh, not trying... Yeah. Ends up being very successful. And, and you know, he uh, invariably snowballs into this stressed, anxiousness. <laughs> gasping. Absolutely. And the harder he tries to hold his <laughs> breath, the worse it becomes. Has to give up. And um, and it's a humiliating kind of experience <laughs> in some be. ways. Um, but it teaches us a lot about ourselves and the way we process things. Um, this is without going into like a, a – hyper complex brain mm. kind of thing. But we have, we have lots of different triggers. Um, but just the way that we feel about our own abilities. Talk about the psychology things. because that's, I think, something that distinguishes you. You're a marine scientist, but you've got all of these other um, sources. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the psychology yeah. element of it. Yeah, so, I mean, I, again, I, I was sort of, um, I got into this through the marine science and stuff and, and then into filmmaking and, and wanting to, you know, take people into this underwater world. And, you know, I loved the whole diving with sharks stuff and that was sort of an interest. But then I guess the, the more I taught, the more I started becoming really intrigued with the way people's brains responded to stress and or anxiety or, you know, perceptions of their own ability. Um, and now with the amount of students I have taught, I, I've learned, um, a, a few tricks, I would say, yeah. and, and started to understand, um, the way our minds work when we're presented with something that's uncomfortable or stressful. And so a lot of the, the management 
of, of breath hold and the way that I teach breath hold is about understanding our minds. It's not just a physical sensation that we're learning to manage. It's actually, it's knowing our own brains and, and what particular chemicals are produced when we're in what parts of our brain when we become stressed and then what parts of our brain are more beneficial to be activated and how we reach those parts of our brain um, instead during a, a highly stressful situation. Um, so, yeah, I guess the the psychology now is is very much um, my interest. Aligned mm. with it all. Mm. A lot of the schools nowadays are coming to the realisation of the importance of honouring children coming of age and becoming adults. Mm-hmm. And so whereas previously that may have fallen to the family and in other cultures that's still celebrated, mm-hmm. seems not to be so much in Australia. Mm-hmm. But what happened? What was your experience? Uh, see, I, I actually had a really lovely experience where my family still had a, a sort of an initiation sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't by any means... Um, paying justice to the incredible feats of, you know, endurance and creativity that, you know, people have, have had as their initiations around the world. Um, I was basically um, taken out in bush yeah. <laughs> by my uncles and grandfather and father and, and um, tasked with particular things to accomplish. Um, and when I finally got back to where my uncles and things had been waiting, um, you know, was invited then to become kind of, uh, join the men in the family. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's a symbolic thing. I think it was a really lovely, it was a symbolic thing that, that, um, enabled me to feel like I was taking responsibility. I was no longer at the kids table. Yeah. This is where like, how Um, did you feel when you walked in and saw your uncles and, members of your family there yeah the, I think push. there is there is something um genuinely uh special I think about being in, in, welcomed into a different part of your life yes um and it's I, a beautiful I, way of putting it to be welcomed it, it's a, it's a powerful thing to be entrusted with too mm. and I think you know we need that guidance I think when what some of the the Really lovely things that I've been a part of, as you say, touched on before, as a as father-son kind of things. I, I've um, taken families over to um, the Solomon Islands. Yes, um, I was going to ask. The photos of you with the children and what you're achieving supporting the Solomon Islands. Tell me about that. Yes, yeah, so that's something I'm just sort of working on. now. I've had a long relationship with um, a village there and I've been sort of supporting a, a village over there, bringing people over and and immersing them into that kind of a culture and and learning. It's a, it's a really, it's a different kind of way of living. It's got the very different values. And, yeah. and people, while they find it confronting at first, ultimately they come back just not wanting to leave. And, and like, what are some of the lessons that you've learned? Uh, so one of the things that stuck out for me the most, I think, and is um, – being chastised yeah. <laughs> for something I, I, I hadn't even thought about. So I, I was filming a project over there at the time and I'd sort of um, set myself a task of, you know, filming a particular fish, doing a particular thing way up inside these creeks. And, and in order to do that, I had been going every day, walking up through these creeks, you know, there's crocodiles and eels and I'm all, all through these creeks and, 
you know, had be sitting in this creek for days on end. And the, and the kids yeah. came and helped me do that. They sort of, they'd find the fish, they'd sort yeah. of see the particular type of fish that I was trying to think, they'd, you know, there it is. And they'd, they'd go and find bugs and try and throw them into the water to get the fish to come over closer towards where yeah, I was trying yeah. to film them. And they'd keep a lookout, you know, for everything else. And, and um, <clears throat> they'd been really lovely, obviously super interested in what I was doing, mm. really helpful as well. And we had a cargo ferry that would come past the island once a week. And um, and this particular day, there's the, the ferry was going to go past. And um, so I, you know, had a, a couple of spare dollars and I thought, oh, look, I'll give, give all the, the kids a dollar so that when the, the ferry, the cargo ferry came past and stopped, you know, they could, you know, paddle out there and, and you know, buy some kind of a, a lollies or whatever, you know, yeah. something as just as a thank you. Yes, yeah. And I got back to the village and, and one of the ladies there, she's kind of like a, a village mum. She looks a lot after a lot of the, the the kids who are sort of raised by the village. Yes. And, um, and I said to her, oh, look, you know, the, the guys, the, all the kids have been really, really great. I, I, I gave them a dollar so that when, you know, they, the, the ferry arrives. And she looked at me and was like, oh, we don't do this. I was like, "Oh, what do you what do you mean?" Don't she's like, "Don't teach kids these kids this." She yeah. said, "You know, we don't give money just for you know. These kids need to learn that we look after each other and we help each other because we're part of a community and it's good to help each other." What a beautiful message! And yeah, and I and first of all, I was like, "Oh, I mean, I was trying to help." And I, I sat there for a moment yeah. and I reflected and I was like, "You know what? I'm right. She's really right here." She, you know, if 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 we start from a young age only doing things because we expect a reward, we don't necessarily really learn the 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 skill of yeah. unconditional giving. Those six stages of moral development of I do it because I get a reward, as opposed to I do it just because it's for the betterment. Yeah, and and I think once you're part of a, a community which recognises um the the relationships and how important the health of an entire community is rather yes. than about your own position um you're better off overall in terms of happiness and and you know when something goes wrong people are there to help you and you know, all those sorts of things you don't you're not you're not isolated you're not alone yes. i think this is this is the, uh, what's really missing in other parts of the world and so those lessons, when I take people over there and they experience this kind of thing, it's it's a challenge for these people to, you know, cast off our own. Th- yeah, because we don't necessarily ever take the time to question, you know, the the uh, the way that we live our lives. Yes. I know mm. at my sister's wedding, the priest, he told this beautiful story about everyone has a song mm. and that there are some communities where if you deviate from the way that you're supposed to be living, then you're brought back to yourself because people will gather around you and they will sing your song, which I thought was beautiful. That's a, it's a, it's a, I, as a reminder. I hope, yeah, I mean, I, I hope I never have to sing. I am a terrible singer. I would <laughs> be no good at that. <laughs> a couple of sea shanties <laughs> after a gin. <laughs> oh, nobody should hear me sing. <laughs> um, tell me about your work with the social enterprises that you've set up mm. in the Solomons that clearly won't also, involve you busking. Yeah, no, so so the, the social enterprise that I'm, I'm sort of a part of is in the, the Philippines. Oh, Philippines, sorry. Um, so that was it's called Scuba for Change. Yes. This is the actual, it's a registered um, organisation. We uh, basically, we were looking at, at a way of being able to help um, communities, kids yes. particularly here, um, but entire communities 
achieve both social sustainability and environmental sustainability. So I, I, I'm very firmly of the part, uh, the, the sort of the belief that you can't necessarily achieve the goals of environmental sustainability, which is what we we definitely need to start looking at, um, without addressing social sustainability. Yes. And so what we did over there is there's this beautiful other foundation called the Stairway Foundation who look after a lot of the homeless kids. Uh, they provide a home, education, um, support in, in with their schooling, but also access to arts and drama and music and all these wonderful things and a mentor sort of yes. program. And um, yet they were always sort of in a, a, a requiring a handout. You know, they require on the generosity of- um, philanthropy, yes, which is which is nice to think that that would always exist, but it's not something that's sustainable long term. And I, yes. and I said it also, I think it it leads to a position um, when applied in other situations where we are continue we're creating problems, I guess, by developing a handout kind Rather of than a hand up. So, yeah, and yeah. so what we did is we. My big sort of thing there was about marine protection and, and the environmental protection. You know, environmental economics for me was a was a, the driving force behind solving both of these problems. Mm. Um, if you can create a a business which is owned by the community, which yeah. who which is which uh, whose whose asset is the health of that environment? Yes. Um, then the community benefits um, massively in the environment. Benefits. So we created a scuba centre. Yes. Um, which then we then got the community involved with. So we reached out to a number of different organisations to help support um, that, and we were really lucky to have the support of, of a few amazing um, organisations. Um, we took the kids um, from the local uh, from Stairway Foundation in to go scuba diving. Yes. Right, so they got to see wow. it. Um, their kid, their parents, you know, a lot of local fishermen. Um, they then started to see the value of what we were creating. So we, some of the local fishermen, then were then uh, instrumental in protecting, setting up a marine protected area around the place that we were sort of uh, we were taking tourists. Yes. Um, the money that was generated from the the dive centre. Um, then supported uh, the local school, so the Indigenous, the Barclayans. Yes. Um, so we provided free uh, food at school, which increased attendance That's rates. That's incredible. Um, up to so 90%. So then you've got to spiral up rather yeah, than- Yeah, so you're educating these people, providing them with, with opportunity. You're also taking away the need of the, the parents to be out fishing as much. Yes. Because, you know, these kids are getting- Fed from um, the, program the, the program that's supporting, and we brought over some ama- amazing sort of uh, agricultural uh, agricultural specialists to work on um, sustainable agriculture for the thing. So the whole sort of thing became this amazing social enterprise, um, and Scuba for Change was just one part of the the input. So we, where the money would start to come from, and people wanted to come and see this, and you know they they have an amazing environment to go to. Um, which is quite amazing. You know, you've got beautiful coral reefs, um, which then look after a, a community. The whole community was sort of benefiting from it, not just one single person. Could you replicate that mm. elsewhere? Have you got plans to? Yeah. So the the, the idea was that this would then um, replicate um, in other communities or environments where, 
you know, you had the the community spirit, I guess, to have yes. that kind of thing. Like the Solomon Islands, which is what we're we're in the process of um looking at setting up a very similar thing there with a with a lodge. So there is David Bousseau, who mm-hmm. I blame for my interest in the not-for-profit sector. Mm-hmm. He's one of the founders of Opportunity International and so one of the pioneers of microfinance. And so what you have described seems to be so well-balanced in terms of the community and the parents and the children coming together and all of the multiplicity and the dynamic impact for so many. And so what has happened in certain circumstances is that With Opportunity International, they provide microfinance loans predominantly to women. Mm -hmm. And so then because there was an imbalance in earning power, what they found was that that shifted the dynamics in marriages. And so then the men were feeling disenfranchised because suddenly the women are more powerful Mm -hmm. because they've got an earning capacity and they're not subservient to and as reliant on their men. Mm -hmm. And so then David being David has come in um, outside Opportunity And so then he's putting in place programs for the men to say, you know, we'll give you this training and then at the end of it we'll guarantee you a job. So it's so heartening to hear that the program that you've got in the Philippines has that impact for so many across all different levels. Yeah, yeah. I think think the most important part of of making positive changes is um, first engaging with the community and seeing what Mm. they want. Yes, absolutely. I think there's a lot of really good will that's wasted by yes. saying this is what we would like you to do. Yes, this is what we think is best. Yeah, and and so you know you need to work with communities and see first of all that what they want and to listen. Whether, yeah, yeah. And in fact, that's a David lesson because mm-hmm. back in the 70s, when there was an earthquake in Indonesia, mm-hmm. after he had helped rebuild Darwin after Cyclone Tracy, there was an earthquake in Bali. So David took his crew over there and help rebuild the communities. Mm -hmm. And so as they thought was a beautiful gesture, they built this whiz-bang impressive playground for the children and none of the children went there because they had built it on a site that was sacred and so they were terrified Uh, of the spirits. And so that's where David at the start learnt, listen to the community first and foremost. Uh, Absolutely. And and we... It's very easy, very, very easy um, in to come coming from a culture which doesn't necessarily have the same um, sensitivities to you know places and spirit and these sorts yes. of things to to not even consider that those things might exist. I know there's there's there are, I've been very fortunate enough to visit a lot of different remote communities and yes. and the first thing I learn is. Do not think that you know. Um, An my experience, six foot five man walking in, well, my experience suddenly. is is going to be uniform with yeah. theirs. You yes. know, like the first thing you should do is always go in and sit down and listen. Yes. Mm. And so, what are some of your favourite places to which you've travelled? Um. Oh, it's a, it's a. I always I get very hung up on where they like. From a people perspective, there's yeah. one thing, or from a, like an environment perspective, is something different. Because I think people first. Okay, all right. Well, look, I I would have to say that I mean some parts of the Solomon Islands to me yeah. is, is incredibly special. The people that and the the way that I was welcomed, yes. as well as the how different the cultures can be. And it's been both challenging. 
um, adventurous, um, incredibly rewarding, uh, you know, those sorts of things. And and they haven't been ex- expensive or luxurious. I mean, the, the best times in my life have been sitting on a dirt floor um, under a thatched roof sharing a fish that I've caught with a family, you yeah. know, in, in the rain. Do you feel a, a um, shift in your spirit from the hubbub of all the business that you run here and the different training centres that you have to take a step back but then to connect? I think, I mean, people, are, as well as being incredibly different, are also very much, there are similarities yeah. with wanting to connect and explore each other and each other's experiences in mind. Yeah. And I think that is what is so alluring, you know, when you go to these places to find something that can be so different yet at the same time engage in a level that's the same. The uh, same human condition. Hmm. Or a, a curiosity about one another. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to do. And places from an environmental perspective? Okay. Well- I have to. There are some very. There's some very very special small pinnacles way out in the middle of the Pacific, um, and the that I've been to, and they have been the most abundant, um, frightening, incredible places. You know, you you jump into the water there, not knowing at all what to expect, and you're surrounded by, you know, forty or fifty um, big sharks, um, and you know, you might be one of the first people these animals have ever, ever seen. I was going to say, how do you find, how do you come to today I'm going to be in the middle of the Pacific uh, and, and know, I'm going to be at this point where no one else has been? There's a certain- Or I could be sitting at a desk uh, as a lawyer. I was a risk taker. I was never really a normal kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's- um. I don't have a TV. I haven't have a te- I haven't had a TV since I was 16, 17. That's impressive. And I think not not having that has has allowed me to go do other things. When when you when you make it an ambition, yeah, um, to to be adventurous, you you make yeah you, take the shot. Yeah, you do. You take the shot. And when people speak of diving in Australia, naturally, there's a tendency for people to think of the Great Barrier Reef. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of commentary and science and something in between about what's happening with the reef. But what yes. has been your experience of it? Um, so I was fortunate enough, um, again, to be working with some amazing scientists um, with uh, on, on a, this a film called Blue. And we, I personally w- was taken up to um, experience the, the bleaching event um, in 2016, and it was it was confronting. Uh, you know, I, I've been travelling up along the length of that reef since I was pretty young, mm. and I've dived a lot of different reefs. You know, I think that is pretty much if you identify with some, one thing that I do, you yeah. know, that's that's explore the, the reefs. You know, yes. I go out and, and everything I could possibly find. Oh, I just oh, jump over and have a look. Um, to go to places that I had seen so incredible, um, looking like it, it was, it was, it's, there's no real way to give it justice to see. It's like, you know, you're, you're walking into a hospital room 
with all your favourite friends um, on ventilators. Gray and Paolo. You know, like every, everything was borderline ready to give up and you just sitting there like, what can I do, you know? And, and yes, there's a bit of hope thinking that, you know, parts of that will recover. Mm. Um, but the science doesn't suggest that it's going to do that by itself. You know, there's a trend here that, that, that things are getting worse. Um, and, and we, and it's confronting to see it. And I, I'd love, I, I think we would have more movement on this if we could get people underwater and see this. And that's what I was you wondering, know? what can we do? And conscious mm. that the borders will start to open soon. Mm-hmm. And so with immediacy, it's Queenslanders who are the immediate stewards, I suppose, mm. of the reef. So what can we do to start and then the rest of Australia? Uh, and We have such an incredible, incredible country. We have uh, one of the most fortunate people on the planet to have such an amazing and diverse environment. And I think if we were to do one thing for our future generations, it would be to realise the value of what we have. Go out there and experience it. The people who experience it, the people who who, who um, find that way of connecting, and it doesn't have to be... Um, the same as everything. Some people like going fishing. Some people like snorkeling. Some people like painting. You know, some people, you know, they like just to sit and listen to things. But if you find a connection with the outdoors in a way um, that's unique to you, you will want to stand up and protect it in the future. And that's what I think we need to do. We need to get out there and really see what we stand to lose. You know, and I think that's the power of Blue, mm. your multi award winning film. Mm. That's one. An actor award, the Banksy Award. Mm-hmm. I'm going to list off a few of <laughs> yes, them. But the New York uh, Wild Film Festival, 2018 mm-hmm. winner of the Best Impact Film, mm-hmm. and another actor award in 2017, winner of the Best Cinematography and Documentary, and the cinematography is absolutely beautiful, and a highly prestigious winner of the Le Prix for a French film festival that I don't have the accent to, I don't possess the accent to be able to say, but Really, it should be incorporated into schools' curricula. Mm. How do you describe the film? Um, so I think, look, first of all, I have to say it wasn't just me at all. By, there was an amazing team of people who put this together. I was fortunate enough to be one of the characters, the presenters, and some of my, my filming work went into it. And we did, you know, it was a part of making that. Um, but really, it's a, it's a film for the, for the planet. Mm. You know, it's 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 a, a film that says, you know, like this is we have this incredible place. These are all these amazing things. Um, let's let's ha- have a look at what we can do better because, because we can. And that doesn't mean that we all have to all like uh, all of a sudden make massive changes in ourselves, you know, but we can do small things. And I think um, it's becoming cool to care now, you know, like. You know what? We never believed that um, things would be different until they until they were. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, and, and and the more we normalise just being um, environmentally conscious, um, it's no longer a label, and you're no longer a greenie. You're just a normal just person are. because that's that's we should just do that. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's not a lot of effort. It's just a very small change in mindset, um, and I think that. 
the 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 film focuses on on that and the, the connections of people to places and and those things. And some of those beautiful images mm-hmm. of you in your section of the film mm-hmm. are just truly breathtaking. What were some of the most impactful experiences that you had while filming? Um, so obviously, one of the big ones was the the bleaching events and that, yeah. seeing that um, happen for long, like you know in in my lifetime, you know, yes, um, right before my eyes. I mean, that was hard to take. Um, I was also I've filmed a lot of the plastics stuff. Um, I was over overseas filming uh, for that sort of for that. Stuff and I mean, and the plastics and the animals that's something that is when you first see that is just so confronting, yeah. Yeah, we did. I, I think that what the film did really well was try to um paint um some beautiful stories too. Yes. I, we don't want to just criticize people at all, um, and it wasn't sensationalized whatsoever, no, it was so naturally done, it was so cleverly and intelligently are done. Sick of being told that they're yeah. bad or they're doing the wrong thing, and and you know, like, I've y- People always, you know, like if even the climate change debate and things, you know, like at a time, you know, people were right that, you know, or they, would, they could easily say, yeah, I don't, I don't believe climate change because we didn't have the science to really back it up, you know, and, and you could sort of say, yeah, we didn't know any better. And that's fine. It's okay to have been that way, you know, but our understanding changes and we need to stop crucifying people for believing differently. I think what would like the film does really well is show people who have started to make those changes and are doing really beautiful things like uh, Jennifer Lavers in the film and and shows her connection with caring for the animals affected by plastic. It's not saying you're bad, you do, shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. It's saying like look, here's a brilliant and a very caring way of of, of uh, doing better. And it elevates people. Yeah, it elevates the conversation and the and expectations. Yeah, yeah. Rather than telling people they're wrong, it's a, it doesn't. We don't focus on that. It kind of focuses on like this is what we can do. That's right. So I'm going to ask you the next question of something new. So and yeah. you go. I was saying, and, and I, I'm I'm currently I'm I'm about to fly off uh, very 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 soon, like in the next couple of days, to to um, to go and work on another another little project too, uh, which is again focused on our reef. Um, and and the amazing spectacle that it is, but you may have to wait. Oh, let's say four or five. A couple months. more sleeps. Uh, okay. A couple more sleeps to 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 have the reveal on that one. I think everyone should and will be able to see it though. One of the purposes of the Captain's Podcast mm-hmm. is to elevate and not just have a talk fest. So it's to focus on the energy and daring and the brilliance of Australians, mm. rather than this constant diminution and falling back into a stereotype that really doesn't reflect the talent and the skills and yeah. the brilliance of mm-hmm. Australians mm-hmm. amongst a lifestyle that we enjoy. So if you were given carte blanche mm-hmm. and a bucket load of budget okay, and you could create any environmental film, what would it be about and how would you engage? So surely there'd be opportunities for other filmmakers across the spectrum of production and then promotion sure. to really pull together. Okay. Well, look, I, I think that for me, um, I've always looked to the future. I've always thought that, you know, the way of, of um, inspiring people is to recognise both what we have and what we could, could achieve. Um, and I think, um, I think we have an incredible world around us. We have all these amazing cultures, 
which have become the way they are um, because of their unique experience with the environment um, around them. You know, there's, you know, particular weather patterns or there's particular migrations of animals or there's particular, you know, hydrological things that happen. These are incredible, um, unique phenomena around the world um, which have helped guide cultures and spirituality and these sorts of things. And, and you know, that's what creates beauty in the world. Now, if we start to see the changes in our environment which stop those cultures from functioning, if we lose the migrations of animals which, you know, was pivotal in, in, this, in a culture's expression of um, itself, Yes. Then we, we, we allow the world to become a little bit more dull. We lose these cultures. It, you know, that we lose it's a part dissipation of, of the culture. Yeah, we have an extinction of yes. something that was once very, very beautiful. And, and, you know, diversity, I think, is an amazing part of, of the human existence. And um, what I would like to focus on is our changing world. Yes, and and how these ama- the science behind these amazing phenomena, and use the the knowledge of these cultures to solve you know how or, or, or answer questions around how these particular things happen, and and I think in doing that, we create the value of that particular thing. We see how important it is to people, their stories, their cultures, the colors that make the world so beautiful. I think that would be something I would love to explore. Because just seeing the glint in your eye or the sharpness mm. in your eye and the animation, it's just that enthusiasm oh, yeah. of well, schoolboy enthusiasm. Well, you know, a couple of big sharks, me jumping into an underwater volcano. Um, you know, everybody likes to see me almost get eaten or, or killed somehow. So we'll do all that as well. Well, um. <laughs> on that note, I need to ask you a couple of questions mm-hmm. from my nephew, Henry. Sure. For whom you have become a bit of a hero since I mentioned to him that I would be in- um, interviewing you. So, Henry will be eight shortly. Mm-hmm. And he asked about your film and he said, where did you film your part of Blue? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, I filmed a couple of, I filmed some parts in Indonesia I filmed some parts out in the middle of the coral sea. So that scene at the beginning where you see me just sinking off into the depths. Yes. That's filmed right out at one of those little those little reefs, uh, those tiny specks way out in the, in the middle of the coral sea. Um, and then the, all the bleaching events, that was uh, the Northern Barrier Reef around Lizard Island. Right. Mm. And what was the longest time you held your breath while filming? Oh, um, he's a smart kid, young Henry. He is a smart kid. Um, I, I, it's a different experience when you're filming. Mm. Right. So, um, I actually teach uh, photography or cinematography on breath hold, mm. very much like I would for you know hunting fish. You know, yes. I, I remember I also live off the off yes. the oceans, and and I I teach people to be very good at it, so you're not being wasteful or anything. And I teach cinematography to be very much like that. And I think what you need to do is approach every potential shot or interaction with an animal as if, you know, it was a proper long free dive. Um, so I think on some of the filming things I was doing, I th- when we originally started doing stuff with sharks, I imagine it would have been two to three minutes underwater at a time. While um, still lugging all of the with equipment. The cameras. Yeah, 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 with the cameras. Yeah. And so Henry's third question is, were you scared for any part of the filming? Oh, okay. Um, there are moments where you need to put extra emphasis into 
training into the, the training you've done for your brain. Okay. Yeah. So, so how does that all culminate okay. when you're not only just focusing on free diving, but then you've also got to get the shot. Yeah. So it, it becomes a very complex sort of balance between um, what you can afford to let your mind do. Yes. You know, if you if you overthink things or if you become too caught up with something, then your brain your brain burns a lot of oxygen. You know, it's it's oh, of course it's oxygen demand is massive. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I have this unique ability about thinking about absolutely nothing. The less you think, the better you are. <laughs> no, no. Um, so I had a, a point we did. It didn't actually make the final cut in the film. But I did one where I took my fins off and I went through this big labyrinth of caves that are underneath the reef. Um, and I was sort of, you know, crawling through these sort of passageways and like jumping from sort of like cavern This to is cavern, all still free diving. All on breath hold. Yeah. Right. And, um, and it sort of became deeper and deeper and deeper through these holes. And eventually you get to a point where you can climb out and then go back up. And um, I remember th- one of those... Um, we'd set some lights up underneath and I got the the just wait there for a second signal by my mate, uh, the cinematographer. Who's this scuba diver? <laughs> who's on a rebreather. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, just while I repositioned, you know, the shot, the framing, you know, and you're like, Ooh! and, and at, at that particular time, you're like, when your brain says to you, I don't know how much longer you can, I can hold my breath for, that split second, it's, it, it's not, it, it's what your brain does in that moment which affects the entire rest of your breath. The soon you, as soon as you have that thought, your yeah, whole body responds. Yeah, and you right. need to keep it in, in like in check straight away. You go, I can't, I can't afford to allow my mind to entertain that negativity. You know, go back into I, I have um, particular tasks that I get myself to do to change what part of my brain's to active. Refocus. Yeah, to immediately get yourself in check again. Um, and it's, there's moments there where you're like, oh, I don't, you know, they're, they're really demanding. And um, Henry's last question mm-hmm. is, how old does he need to be before he can start freediving? Well, we've just started teaching. I think we have an ex- a freediver exploration course now, I have to check, but I think we're starting now as young as six or eight. It's only right. been, He's nearly it's aged. Only been released um, very, very recently. I'm, I've, I've got to finish all my paperwork to be ensured to teach yeah. it. And usually it's 16 and up, um, but we are because so many people want to, like, it's obviously a new and exciting yeah, thing for absolutely. people to get into. And so we are going to start um, getting out there and teaching so people can, so the kids can do it safely. Yes. You know, the last thing and you want to do, you, you, it can be perceived as a dangerous thing. And certainly if people aren't doing it correctly, it can be dangerous. So I do want to make sure that everyone is safe when they go out there to, to try this. And just finally, conscious of time, but mm-hmm. although you're a marine scientist, never a man to be limited in any way, you've also got a deep knowledge of the Australian bush, particularly the rainforests around mm-hmm. Byron Bay. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the history of the big scrub. Well, the cedar getters, um, I mean, the big scrub was kind of what the area was settled on. You know, the, the cedar cutters came in and, and had set up their camps and then um, when they'd sort of taken out most of the timber, so I think there was the cedar, the buyong, um, I think there was beech, all these sort of other, you know, big lowland um, hardwood trees, um, they'd then moved to dairy 
And in the dairy industry, they end up clear felling um, nearly nearly all of it. I think there's something like 0.3% of the original That's rainforest. percent yeah. Now, it, somewhere around there. Um, anyway, look, it, you, you would drive through that area now and never think it was any different until you saw or, or heard what it used to be like. You know, it's a, it's almost a misnomer. You go there and there's like the big scrub and you're like, oh, I saw a bush. Yeah. But and that's, the camphor laurel trees. And camphor laurel trees. Yeah. It's not really that big or scrubby. Um, but, yeah, we used to have an incredible rainforest there. And what I guess I What would I you would, like to do is see an, a rejuvenation of Byron back to what it was yeah, or towards I what it think, was? I think it would be a beautiful thing for our community. It would be an amazing thing for the, the people. mm um, the actual area itself, you know, to to be able to have a, 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 a f- what did you say, flagship yes. um, project of bringing back the, the big scrub, something that, you know, the community can get involved with, with replanting. Um, you know, imagine the idea of having, take your kids there and plant a couple of trees. Yeah. You know, those trees will outlive. Experiential. Oh, they'll, they'll outlive you, yeah. you know. And and you could go back 20, 30, 40 years' time, your kids, and go, those trees, I planted those trees. And I think if you have a project large enough that kind of brings a community into it, you know, schools, um, families. families, these things, then you, you start that connection and you kind of – you're giving back to that community. I think that it would be an amazing project to, to, to really um, – Implement to see for future generations. I think it would be a great thing. Genuinely, not just something that you put on a poster, but to have that tangible experience Mm. of a child who's able to walk up, hold the hand of his or her parent, and and plant the tree. The The family to plant the tree. The local people there, too. You know, there's so much knowledge about those plants. The local, Mm. I mean, there's some really awesome local indigenous like culture around that area, too. With amazing knowledge of these plants, which and and things, which kind of it would be a waste to not have that available to people. You know, yes. like when we know about these things, we put value on them. And I think if you could, in, in, you get all of those things together, you've got uh, amazing environmental benefits. Um, people, if you're worried about climate change, and you, you say, well, well, again, let's not look at focus on just what is wrong with what we're doing, but like, what can we do that's a positive effect? Plant Excellent. some trees. Right, um, support and and uplift the local indigenous cultures. You know, give them the opportunity to. I mean, first see what they want to do, but yes. you know, give them the opportunity to to be caretakers and and promote their culture. What a perfect client event or executive retreat to spend a beautiful day, especially in Byron Bay or Sydney, exploring the oceans, while also working on mindset that is such a vital component of achieving beyond expectation. There are so many alignments with leadership and executives, but also just to enjoy the natural beauty of our oceans to gain a greater understanding of the need to protect them. Lucas, I'm so greatly looking forward to seeing your next adventures, including the one you mentioned that will be revealed towards the end of the year when the oceans and moon align. Moreover, given your wholehearted dedication to the environment that is just so apparent from what you've already achieved across so many aspects of your work and life, I can't wait to see the initiatives I know you have in the pipeline becoming a reality to beneficially impact people now and for future generations.